0: Um, this is Danny Saez, everybody. Danny is on staff here at Bethel, uh, churchwide, as, uh, as a pastoral resident, and I've asked him to come and to read God's Word for us, and you'll see why in a moment.
1: Good morning, church. I have the privilege of reading Romans chapter 8, verses 17 through 22. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer... With him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Leo la palabra de Dios en el libro de Romanos capítulo 8, versículos 17 al 22. Y si hijos también herederos, herederos de Dios y coherederos con Cristo si es que padecemos juntamente con Él para que juntamente con Él seamos glorificados pues tengo por cierto que las aflicciones del tiempo presente no son comparables con la gloria venidera que en nosotros ha de manifestarse porque el anhelo ardiente de la creación es el aguardar la manifestación de los hijos de Dios porque la creación fue sujetada a vanidad no por su propia voluntad Sino por causa del que la sujetó en esperanza. Porque también la creación misma será libertada de la esclavitud de corrupción y la, a la libertad gloriosa de los hijos de Dios. Porque sabemos que toda la creación gime a una, y a una está con dolores de parto hasta ahora. Esta es la palabra de Dios. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. I, uh, I
0: want you to meet Danny uh, in the lobby after the service. Danny uh, uh, comes as He's full-time here, and he's um, interested in what God's doing in our Hispanic community around here, and I'm pumped about that, so thank you. I think if we took a vote, the first service would have said they'd rather hear uh, anything said in Spanish from Danny <laughs> can sir, can in contrast to anything I would say in English, and um, I voted in the affirmative. I... Uh, I want you to turn in Romans chapter 8. That's what Danny just read, and that's where we're going to be today. We're picking up again in verse 17. But as you're turning there, I wonder if you've ever had that moment in life where uh, somebody was talking to you. Maybe it was a you know, maybe it was a, a kid you were mentoring, or maybe it was like your own child that you were raising, or maybe it was a, a, a co-worker or a, a friend you had in college sat across the table from you, and they were like just dreaming about their life in the most grandiose ways. I'm going to make this much money. I'm going to going marry that type of person. I'm going to live in this type of house. I mean, uh, I remember uh, I, w- I was a, um, a youth pastor over in Naperville, Illinois, for about six years, and one of the kids that I got a privilege to get to know really, really well was a, uh, a, a boy named Nathan. Uh, Nathan's dad, I don't know if he played fro- pro football or not, but he was built for it, and he was a coach in the area, and Nathan, um, let's just say it this way, uh, I'm still not as big as Nathan was today as he was when he was in eighth grade. Like, dude just belonged on the football field, had, had the gene, you know what I mean? And I remember exactly where we were the moment that Nathan started to tell me, hey, you know what I'm going to do? Here's how my life's going to work out. I'm going to go to this high school. I'm going to start as a freshman. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to grow. I'm going to get recruited by my end of my junior year. I'm going to know what college I'm going to go to. I'm going to go play D1, and then I'm going to go pro, and I would love to play for the Minnesota Vikings. Now, he had bad taste. I know, I know, I know, but forgive him. Uh, um it took every ounce of me in that moment not to want to pour cold water on Nathan. Because when you we're programmed as people, when you hear pie in the sky, like I got this all figured out type of thinking and mentality, we're programmed to count the realism of that, of that thing. And, 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 and often I think, really, how is that going to happen? Like real life doesn't work like that, Nathan. The odds of you going pro after your freshman year in college are like really, 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 really small. The odds are against you. And if you were here last Sunday, you might remember that we came to Romans chapter 8, verse 14, which tells us about the awesome promise of being adopted into God's family. Paul tells us that we have a position in God's family because we are heirs with Christ, who allows us to be the co-heir of all the eternal blessings of God. It was an amazingly powerful, optimistic message. And I wonder, last week, as you marveled in the majesty of that thought, you realized as I dismissed you on your way out the doors, um, you maybe thought this sense of crushing reality hit you, and maybe you thought, how could that happen? Real life doesn't work like that. The odds are against me. I still have to slog my way through my job this week. I I still have the daily stresses of parenting my kids. I still have uh, daily worries for my aging parents. What good is my adoption as a son or daughter of God today anyway? And that way of thinking is so normal to us. It's hardwired in as a subconscious. You maybe didn't think that you had that thought until just now, and you're like, oh, yeah, I had that thought. We're trained to calculate, weigh, and compare what we hear as pie-in-the-sky idealism and dismiss it as just a dream. And yet, what I love about the Bible is that Paul promises us what we think is glorious and yet he anchors us to the cold hard facts of life and to help us understand and meet us in our realism today um, of what Christ and the spirit is going to do in the future but yet how we live in today uh, we've got Romans chapter 8 verse 17 and following and it may sound like Bad news, what's coming, but it's actually the most honest and realistic good news our souls could ever need. Here's where we left off last week, just to remind you. Uh, And if children, that's what we are, we're adopted as children. And if you're a child, then you are an heir, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And that's where Pastor Steve conveniently left me to pick up this passage. Because if you keep reading, the next words are, provided we you got to say it out loud, otherwise you don't feel it. Provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. I just heard the collective, <clears throat> hit your gut. And off the soaring idea of adoptions as sons, I'm so, actually so, Terrifically glad as I was in my study this week looking at this passage, I had this moment, I wasn't crying, but I was like profoundly thankful to God that there was this pound of realism here in this text. Otherwise, quite frankly, I would be prone, I bet you would be prone, to just dismiss all that Paul has just said as idealism, as fancy religion, as hope for the masses. And yet, Paul juxtaposes this idea of suffering and glory, and in doing so, he's realistic about our hope that we have in the future while still acknowledging the inescapable reality of the pain of our human existence. I mean, how many people know this? To to be human is not to go from glory to glory to glory to glory. That's what the gods do, apparently. For, for, for us to be human, it is to go from suffering to suffering, to suffering, to suffering. We are creatures who live, all of us, somewhere in the valley. Occasionally, we get to ascend the mountaintop of our achievements, experience some grace of God, like a wedding or a birth of a baby or even moments of God's deliverance. But um, the glory doesn't seem to last very long. I don't know if you've noticed that. Like the new car smell tends to wear off. I'm reminded of that moment in... I think it's the gospel of John when Jesus transfigures himself in front of his three disciples. And one of them, Peter, is like, this is awesome. I'm going to build myself a shanty right here. Because even living in a shanty is better than going back down to the valley. And Jesus tells him, no, you can't. No. You're not meant to live up here. It's back down to the valley. We continually find ourselves back in the valley. I remember speaking this week to some of you who were on the mountaintop and at the depths of the valley in the very same day this week in a matter of hours. Why? Because life happened. In this moment of realism, Paul helps us know how to think about then human suffering, what he calls our groanings in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, actually all the way through verse 27, which we're going to take over the next three weeks. But here he shows us one bit of groaning to help us understand our suffering. Notice what he says. This is where we're going to kick in here. Did I, I didn't lose you at suffering, did I? You're with me? Danny, I need you to read this passage again. I'm going to start over. Are you with me? Okay, because you need to learn how to deal with suffering because uh, there's something really important here. So look at, look at it with me, verse, verse 18. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. I would like you to repeat those three words with me. Not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And this is an astounding statement. If somebody knew about suffering, it was the Apostle Paul. Before Paul was a follower of Jesus, he, it was his actual job to make Christians suffer. And so one day... Um, Jesus caused him to experience his own suffering. He blinded Paul on the road to Damascus. Maybe you know this story. And um, A couple of days later, the scales found out, fell off. He gave his life to the Lord, and, and he was activated on a missionary journey. Paul literally went around the world, the known world, three times to share uh, the word of Jesus. He was the most ferocious preacher in the world at that time. He took these trips that resulted in him being robbed, being stoned and left for dead, surviving a shipwreck only to get safely to shore so that a snake would bite his hand. He was imprisoned, stripped naked, went days without food, confined in rat-infested dungeons, finally lived out his days under house arrest before he was killed at the hands of Rome. This is the guy who wrote in Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, understandably so, Galatians 6, 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. I would say the same thing if I was in his shoes. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Like I've been through the ringer in this life, you can see the scars on my arms, on my back, and we agree suffering, isn't this what suffering produces? It produces scars. Bearing on his body, he physically suffered. Not necessarily saying that he suffered in exactly the same way that Jesus did, like the marks of Jesus are the marks on Paul as in the say like where the sword pierced the side of Jesus was also a scar that Paul had on his body that's called voodoo what Paul is saying is that i bear in my body the marks of Jesus in that i have given him my life and it still cost me something and anyone who thinks that when they come to Jesus they get health wealth and prosperity ought to just study the life of Paul whose life reflects the kind of life of Christ Romans 8.18 helps us avoid making the mistake of thinking that when we come to faith in Jesus, when we come to Jesus in this present time, we get all the benefits of heaven in their final form. Christians, don't be duped by American Christianity, which promises you something that actually isn't what Christ promises you. Don't take the bait thinking that Jesus is just a product that will make your life better like Drano or a stick of gum. Yes, Jesus makes your life better. Amen? That's the collective testimony of the suffering saints. But Jesus doesn't make your life better in the way that we often are programmed to think about it. We are people who will go out of our way to avoid pain. And yet the way of Jesus wasn't to avoid it. It was to lean into it and to embrace suffering. And so... We have to ask the question, why does Jesus, why does Paul call us into suffering? And notice what he says, I consider, I consider, that's a really important word. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. That's another really important word. Just take those two right here. Uh, Paul says, I consider, I, I thought it over carefully, I've weighed the evidence, I don't think this is even worth me spilling ink on the page that it would take to do the cost, benefit, analysis for enduring suffering for the sake of the glory that is to be revealed. What, what Paul is saying is, is if, I, if I have a scale in this life, and I've got my suffering, and I've got God's glory, I don't even need to run the numbers. You track it with me? Like I, It's not even a fight. That what's going to come is even greater than what I'm experiencing now. And that's important here because that word revealed is the, it's the word apocalypto, the apocalypse. Some of you like apocalyptic movies because you're weird. But <laughs> apocalyp- apocalyptic movies are about the coming, the revealing of the end times. This is how the world ends. In Greek, it's not so like doomsday. It's actually just it, this is what was hidden now being revealed. It exists, it's there, we just, not yet can we see it. One day, we will be able to see it. It will be revealed to us. It's here, it's present, but we don't know it fully. This is the meaning of what Paul's getting at. He goes, when I think about all that I don't even see yet, the hope that I have for the future, this great revealing, what I'm going through right now, as painful as this might be, doesn't even tip the scales. It doesn't even create any inertia against the glory of God. This verse It's actually a restatement of the same idea Paul wrote to another group of Christians in in, in Corinth that says this. Paul says, for this light momentary affliction, notice those words, light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So here's the big idea for the next three weeks. Is that our scars can't tip the scales on God's glory. Our scars, our suffering, it doesn't move the needle when it's compared to the glory of God. The image in this text, it's unavoidable. Glory, it's it's many things, but it's most commonly thought of as like the weightiness of a thing. Not in terms of like tonnage or your waistline, but in terms of, of significance and influence and majesty and beauty and purity when matched up with the significance and the majesty and the purity of the glory of God that he will unveil in due time, particularly to those who are united to Christ, our common pains here on earth, they are like feathers against the anvil of God's glory. They are like my car yesterday on the Grand Prix track against Bill Goldthorpe's car who crushed all of ours. Okay, you weren't here. It's like that uh, UFC fighter Khabib getting in the ring for an MMA match with a toddler. You tracking with me? Because here's how that goes down. The ref doesn't even start the fight. Just raises Khabib's hand and says, you would kill this kid. We're not going to even run the race. It's done. It's over. You win. That's Paul's point. So In proportion, disproportionate is God's glory to our suffering. And that should be good news to us because we suffer a lot, don't we? Our scars, they don't tip the scales on God's glory. And that's not to say our suffering in this life is insignificant. It's actually to say our suffering is very significant. I just sense I need to tell some of you who are going through pain right now that I wish right now what I could do is actually just like give you a hug and pray with you and walk through the season together. Because what Paul is going to show us is kind of a macro picture of suffering. I found giving people macro pictures of suffering in the context of their very intense personal suffering is not pastorally helpful. It's like the, the guy that comes over and is like, don't be sad. And you just want to punch him. And so if you want to punch me today, I get it you can't. we got security around here. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like I want to just acknowledge the fact that if you're hurting today, that's real pain. And I hope, by God's grace, that the words in, in, in Romans will help us have a long view on suffering. And here's what Paul is saying. Since our scars can't tip the scales on God's glory, it's worth enduring suffering if we understand that the end of Life in this world of suffering is disproportionate glory that is yet to be revealed. Christian, you can hang on hope and walk the road together because you know at the end of it is a prize that uh, makes it all worth it to get This truth planted deep in our hearts for why suffering isn't worth comparing to future glory. Paul is going to actually take us right here in these couple of verses out of our own selves and just kind of put humanity on the back burner for the moment and show us just from God's creation, here's how it works. And then to later next week, he's good. You got to come back for next week because he's going to put humanity back in context and say, because this first thing is true, this second thing is also true. And so I want to, y'all track you guys with me. We're going to talk about creation today. This is what he says. Verse 19. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of him who was subjected in hope. That uh, that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation, do you guys see it? It's creation, it's creation, it's creation, it's creation. Has been groaning together until now in the pains of childbirth. I've got three truths about how creation suffers that ought to help us understand what God is doing in suffering. The first is this, I want you to write this down, take a note, tattoo it on your body. It'll be a great conversation starter. First thing is this, is that creation suffers universally. Creation suffers universally. To get to the end of the argument, we just kind of have to start at the end, and we're going to work our way back up towards verse 20. If we look at verse 22, Paul says this, Now we know that the whole creation, how how much of creation is that? All of it, right? All of creation is suffering and the groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. When Paul says creation here, he's not talking about um, certain parts of creation. He's not talking about the angelic realm. He's not talking about humanity. He's very particularly talking about the the, the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the mountains and the things that you catch out of the ocean. This is what he's got in mind. The, The physical world, the natural realm, it's groaning together. The whole creation, universally all of it, has been groaning, suffering, enduring pain. But not only... Not only pains, but birth pains, which I'm told are the worst. Verse 22, or verse 21, let's go backwards one verse. The creation itself, itself, creation itself will be set free from its own bondage to corruption. Humanity is not the only creation that is bound to corruption in this life, creation itself is bound. And so, track with it, all of creation groans because all of creation is bound to corruption. There is in this world a steady march towards the chaos and decay of life. John Piper, uh, I think he said it this way, is that all of life here in this present age is just a conveyor belt of corpses. Aren't you glad you don't go to his church? don't really know if that was a dig or a joke or what, but I like John Piper. I'm going to quote him in a moment. All of creation's groaning. Why? Because it's subjected. It's subjected. And I wonder if you think about your job. How How many of you, you don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you work in an industry where you're putting things back together? Maybe a medical industry or a auto repair industry or a, you know, you, you, Monday through Friday, you're fixing pipes, you're cleaning things, you're making this world kind of more of a back-in-order type of place. Why do you have to do that? It's because we're not prone to order and flourishing. Things in this world are prone to dying and falling. Because God's good creation, it wasn't always destined towards decay, but when sin came, it was frustrated so that death is holding creation captive. Verse 20, let's go work it one more backwards. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Uh, there's a futility here to creation suffering that does uh, something against the desires of creation. Paul says it wasn't willingly, which means that there's something in the suffering of our lives and in creation that rubs against our created intention. And so hardwired within, God's creation is this desire for us to bring forth life and fruit and beauty. And yet suffering has penetrated every sphere of God's created order, cosmically and microscopically, ecologically and geologically, horticulturally and agriculturally. I don't know what the word is for the animal world. veterinarianally? I don't know. But, but, but that would go there. God's creation is in pain, verse 22. It's bound to corruption, verse 21, and it's subjected to futility, verse 20. Doesn't that sound a lot like our world? Before we think about the ramifications of the futility of our present era, I just want to simply keep the big thing, the big picture that Paul is trying to lead us towards, the big idea in front of us, lest we get sidetracked here. Paul's point is that creation suffers universally, which means this. If you suffer, you need to know. Oh, this sounds like such a non-pastoral thing to say, but it's the most pastoral thing I can think of to say right now. If you suffer, you're not alone. All of creation is suffering. If you suffer, God is not singling you out. Why? Because we're all in this together. Creation suffers universally. You ever um, have a friend who something good happens to somebody else and all they can do is complain? They're like Debbie Downer from the SNL skit. Um, They think everything that happens to them in life is akin to the experience of Job in the Bible. And I think that's a common experience for us in our own hearts when we see other people succeeding and we ourselves aren't succeeding. We ask ourselves, we cry out to God, we go, God, why me? And Paul's answer is, why everybody? Why everybody? Because we all suffer. And so in a roundabout way of encouragement, aren't I a good encourager? You want me to, you know, when you're in pain and suffering, you're like, I need to call that pastor. He was a good encourager. Here's, here's my encouragement to you, is that in the midst of your suffering, friends, all of creation, the whole of creation is suffering. You don't have to feel that God is singling you out or that he's particularly punishing you. It's not just you. It's not just you. It's all of us. I guess I could just have made this point this way. How many people suffer? Let's move on. So creation is suffering. How is creation suffering? How is creation suffering universally? And we don't have to think too hard about the ways in which creation is suffering universally. Um, I, I could talk about the issues that have surfaced in this phenomenon. I'm going to talk about it in a second. I don't actually know anything I'm talking about. You already know this. That's fine. Um, but I just want to play my cards out. I don't really understand what I'm about to say. But there's a phenomenon in this world called global warming. Isn't there? Now, I just said global warming, and half of you went to sides of the aisle in your mind, politics and you know, whether the EPA is involved in this conversation or not. Just get that out of your mind. I don't know how to process global warming. I don't, even, I, don't, I don't get it. I know that science tells me that something is happening in this world that is changing. Something is happening on this globe that is changing. Actually, we would use the term groaning, wouldn't we? I don't think we should call it global warming. I think we should call it global groaning. And I watched out my window the other day as I saw the garbage man make the mistake, I thought, of dumping my recycling container into his garbage truck with the regular trash destined for the dump. I'm sorry. I thought the cans meant something. That's why I go through the hassle of cleaning out my sour cream lids you're welcome. And here's garbage man Joe getting done with his job quicker. It's a yellow lid. So here's a a neighbor of mine called waste management and said, hey, I think your garbage man made a mistake. He actually took my recycling, but this isn't the first time he's ever done. I just want to know why are you taking my recycling to the garbage dump? Aren't we supposed to, like, recycle, don't you? I pay you money to do this. Why are we not doing this? And the response that uh, my friend got back was, oh, you shouldn't be alarmed. You need to know that most of the recycling ends up in the dump anyway. We don't have the capacity to turn it downstream into things that are useful and profitable anyway. Oh, you guys should have seen my next door app. And then the other day, I was out on my back deck, and I love my deck. I, I, I love my deck. And I love the, the, the backyard that God gave us. It's, it's super private. I can't really see my one neighbor to the side. I like him, but I can't see him. I kind of like that too. And uh, we got these beautiful oak trees that, that kind of cover this stream. It all pours into this lake. It's a very pretty thing. Um, but over the past four years that I've lived there, Uh, I've noticed the oaks that are between my house and my neighbor's house along the stream like a small gust of wind will blow over a giant 40, 50-year-old tree with arms reaching and almost touching the throne room of God itself, blowing it over, crushing yards. And there's something inside of me. I'm I'm not an arborist. I chop up wood for fun. But I... Grown, watching it happen. How many times I've walked into our kitchen and told my wife how to travesty this is and she's been like, get over it. And I, um, she likes the trees too. But I have to ask the question, it's made me reflect and go, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody is around to hear it, does it groan in suffering? The answer is yes. These are but scratches on the surface of how God's creation at large is experiencing futility so should we also not expect to experience the same storms of life that seem to uproot us and cause us to grow? And that's where Paul's going to go next week. And so creation suffers universally, friends. It's not just you. Here's the second, more quick, quicker thing, is that creation suffers not just universally, but also temporarily. And this is such good news built in here in the text. It's not forever. The scope of suffering extended to all of God's natural creation it doesn't ease our pain, but it keeps us from feeling singled out. And Paul tells us that not only is suffering extended to all of God's natural creation, but also to history. And look at this text. There are time markers all over this text that help us see the second point. And I know it's uh, spring break, but just play along with me in the English grammar here. Look what Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present. Now, what tense is that? Not a trick question. It's the present tense. Okay, this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing to the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected. What tense is that? Yeah, it was subjected, it's past tense, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free. What tense is that? Future. All within this, Paul is giving us time markers to say that the present is marked by the past, but it will be changed in the future. That's good news. Because we live in this present time where to be human is to suffer, but it wasn't always like this. There was a moment in time where where nature had this catastrophic, time-marking, era-changing event where frustration came into the world. Paul is referring to the curse from God that was put upon creation after mankind sinned maybe you've heard the story, God creates a perfect world and man's food source is in the garden. It was a copious amount of, of fruits and vegetables. Genesis 1, 29, it says it like this, I'll read it to you. It says, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Except one tree. This is my paraphrase. Keep from that, its fruit is not food, and when you eat it, you will die. I love to garden, and this is like paradise. It actually is. Absolute abundance. This, this is the promise of so many chemicals on the market today, pre and miracle grow, that, that you'd have no weeds and perfect nutrition for these huge blossoming fruits in your garden. But in the garden of Eden, the ground, it didn't need any additives. It didn't need any extras. It was just perfectly situated. It was abundant. It didn't take, it didn't take any type of uh, correction. It just provided naturally with a perfect ecology for the crown, crown jewel of God's creation. And Adam and Eve worked the ground with ease and in harmony with one another. It was not work. It was not toil. It was delight. It was beautiful. But after Adam and Eve sinned by disobeying God's one command, part of the curse wasn't just put upon man and the woman and the serpent, but it was put upon nature in itself. Look at what uh, it says in Genesis 3.17. God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you awesome. You shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and for you are dust. To dust you shall return. And here we see creation receiving its first scar. Thorns and thistles, frustration, futility. The ground would have to be worked by man to produce its own fruit. Enter the picture of Droughts and floods, that's Genesis 5, 6, 7, 8. Tornadoes and hurricanes, insects, infestations, the creation of mosquitoes. And what are mosquitoes? But little demons that you can squish. There's seasons in Genesis of overabundance and seasons of absolute desperation. Desperation. And I can't prove this, it's an age-old question, but is it not probable that the scarring of creation produced a phenomenon called extinction? To which we haven't even beheld some of God's majestic, imaginative makings. Aside from this, in the scene of Genesis 3, as God approaches Adam and Eve, he does so in an act of graciousness, providing them garments of skin to replace the embarrassing Fig leaves they've patched together to hide their shames. And we have to ask the question, how did that come about, the durable garments of skin, if not that God had to kill an animal? Scars. We see scars. Creation is suffering and creation is scarred. This is the moment that Paul has in mind right here in verse 20. For for creation was subjected to futility. But back in Romans 8, Paul says that there was a beginning and there was also, amen, praise God, there will be an end to nature's bondage and corruption. Because verse 21 tells us that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage. I notice we don't applaud that. We don't cheer that. We don't get excited about that. Um, this is good news. I, I don't. It ought to help us put creation in its proper place here in this world, in our worldview. Uh, Creation's not everything. Amen? But it's not nothing. And as Christians, we are concerned with the environmental impact of our living, but we also understand there are greater issues at play here. And we groan for God to come and put his creation back into peace with him and peace with itself. But selfish creatures that we are, we don't often care about this until it costs us money. We don't actually ask God to come redeem Nature until nature finds its way into our basement in the form of a flood or an invasive species wipes out the population of fish that we like to catch in our favorite body of water. I really can't talk about this without you getting political in your mind, so I'm not going to say too much, but I want to challenge us to consider what does it mean? What does it mean that creation is suffering temporarily at a minimum? It has to mean that God is personally invested in his glory being reflected in the molecules that make up the earth. And he won't let his creation, days one through five, suffer forever. That's good news for those who are created on day six. So number, number three, uh, creation suffers universally. Creation suffers temporarily. But number three, creation suffers redemptively. Friends, there's hope. Amen? There's hope. Creation suffers redemptively. I know that's not a word, um, but it is today. Look at verse 20 with me one more time. We're going to kind of go through this one last time. I want you to see this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Everybody say these two words together. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Hey, hey I, I know we're uh, wrapping up this message here, but I don't want to skate into the last you know, five minutes of this message just kind of wrapping this up with a nice, bold, nice, nice bow. But I think we ought to ask a really bold question together. All in favor of asking a really bold question. Hey, who subjected na- uh, creation to futility? Like, whose idea was this? Like, who do we blame? Who can we all point the finger at and shake our fists? How many want to say Adam? I want to say Adam. How many want to say the devil? I want to say the devil. And how many want to say God? No one wants to say God. But let's walk through those options together. If what Paul is saying is true, is that, uh, that verse 20, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, then we got to ask ourselves, who subjected it in hope? What hope was Adam bringing about when he fell into sin? What hope for redemption was the enemy trying to bring about when he tempted Adam and Eve? Both of these options fail in their opportunity to actually solve the problem. We feel good talking about Adam and Eve and, and, and the devil being the problem, but friends, who is the one who subjected it in hope? the only one who could have subjected creation in hope is God. How does that feel? John Piper makes the point that, you know, he's amazed at how many Christians become deists when they have to ask this question. A deist is someone who believes that God created the world but then spun the top and walked away. They point the finger at the creation itself, that which was in the creation, is the problem for the thing. But isn't it true that God is actively involved in his creation? We are no deists. Christians have to confront this question, and yet we have to see that the only person who could do this in hope is God. Piper, who's reflected on this passage more than any other pastor I know, says it this way. He says, God didn't just ordain some kind of natural law so that Darwin would have figured out the natural law and it would just be a consequence of things. No, no, no. God judiciously sentenced the world to what it is today. It was a judgment on the world in response to sin. Paul says that God subjected the creation to futility, not because we wanted it, not because nature wanted it, but because It was right, and it would bring about the future that was fitting for the glorious, gracious magnitude of the creator, God. What was the hope then that God subjected us to in this frustration? What was God hoping that this futility found in creation would ultimately bring about? Freedom. He wanted frustration, to evoke emotion in your heart that this is not the way it's supposed to be. What frustration does in us, what futility does in us, every time you go to the hospital, every time you go to a funeral, every time you take a phone call that changes your future, those moments of suffering, God designed them so that we would cry out with our hearts, God, would you come save us? Some say, well, is God wicked for this? Because that's the next question, right? Is God wicked? And I just have to ask you, do you have kids that you've ever had to punish? Have you ever sent your kid to a timeout hoping that you would correct their behavior? Have you ever asked your kids why did you do that? Hoping that you could get to the heart of who they were so that they could say, you know, if, if by miracle we were all great parents and we could get our kids to say this, we would want them to say, Mom, I did that because I'm totally depraved. <laughs> like the first one to get your four-year-old to understand that, you win. But isn't that the motive in parenting? You're asking God to help reveal to your wicked-hearted child that they are not the way they ought to be, not the way that God first created them, so that something in their heart would cry out for something greater. And we struggle as parents to be able to do this well. Not one of us has ever done this in a way that helped our kids go, I see my sin so clearly. I need Jesus for my redemption of my sins. But here, we see God, Romans 8, verse 21, doing this perfectly and not even breaking a sweat. He's balancing the impossible balance of love and justice perfectly so that he could bring us, his children, into a loving relationship with him that would far supersede anything we could ever imagine. Not wicked. He's gracious. So what is the hope? The hope is that freedom is coming. The hope is that life is coming. Say, Dan, how do you know that? It seems like there's nothing but drudgery and suffering. You even said yourself, there's suffering to suffering to suffering. But the reality is the hope is here in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This past week, I found myself in the ICU. Not personally. I was walking around visiting people. And if you've ever been to a hospital, you know sometimes you hear groans. And sometimes you hear screams. And a scream in the ICU will make the hair on the back of your neck prick up and and your soul shudder. I was reminded this week as I was studying that a scream in the labor and delivery ward makes your heart leap with joy. (laughs) And those screams are usually louder. (laughs) Why is that? Because the type of pain determines the type of outcome of hope. Creation is screaming right now. It's not screaming because it's dying. It's screaming because God has hardwired redemption into his plan. And creation is about ready to give birth in God's time, this glorious revealing of time, his perfect glory. And it's screaming right now. But it's glory tomorrow pain right now, but tomorrow's not death. Tomorrow is new life, and this is the redemption that creation's suffering brings about, and we see this truth in the sheer fact that we have a God who came as a man and embraced our suffering. We see redemption required for God to suffer and die, to break the curse of sin over his creation, all of it. I'm reminded that Creation wasn't the only one to suffer universally. Wasn't it Christ who died on the cross for the sins of all people, who himself suffered universally? And selfish people that we are, we take nature and days one through five out of the equation on Good Friday and we just make Good Friday about ourselves. But don't you remember that Good Friday day when the skies blackened and the ground shook because God was bringing about judgment upon his own self for the sake of healing the curse of creation. Jesus suffered universally. And I'm reminded that Jesus was the one who only suffered on this life for 33 years. And I think about that last week of his life, that last 36 hours of his life, that last uh, six hours of his life, the last three hours as they beat his back to a pulp and they put a cross upon him and they made him carry it out to a hill. As he bore the scars of humanity on his back, one writer in the New Testament tells us that he did the calculations and he came up with the same idea saying, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is about to be revealed. The writer actually says that Christ uh, did not look at the cross and shrink away, but, but counted the cost and, and scorned the cross and went through it. I just totally butchered that reference, but you know what I mean. And so we have a a savior who suffered temporarily and he put his scars on the scale of God's glory and it didn't change anything. He went through it. And I'm reminded of the fact that we have a savior who suffered redemptively. Who's bringing about not just the opportunity for you to go to heaven when you die, but for his glory to indwell this whole entire earth in a comprehensive way that none of us can really even imagine. How big is your God? pretty big. It's pretty big. He's so big that the collective scars in this room don't tip the scales on his glory.